I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Poet, essayist, and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Hanif's new work, A Little Devil in America, Notes and Praise of Black Performance, has just been published. And Britt Bennett speaks for so many of us when she writes, A Little Devil in America is a rapturous exploration of black genius. Whether heralding unsung entertainers or re-examining legends, Abdurraqib weaves together gorgeous essays that reveal the resilience heartbreak, and joy within Black performance. I read this book breathlessly. It's also important to note that my conversation with Hanif was recorded prior to the police killing of Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, Ohio, where Hanif lives. This book that you just wrote, A Little Devil in America, is one of those books that for me is, you know, kind of perspective altering in a way that what, that I really needed and wanted and was so happy that you wrote. It's really kind of, kind of amazing. But I should not have been surprised given, you know, given the previous books of yours that I read, you know, particularly the essays, uh, they can't uh, kill, kill us until they kill us. That was kind of an amazing book, and the notes of uh, the notes to a tribe called Quest go ahead in the rain. So, I mean, I'm used to you doing stuff a little out of the ordinary in terms of conceiving of a book, but I think you've really, you've really hit it out of the ballpark with this one. I have to tell you, thanks. That means so much. Yeah, this um, you know means a lot to hear specifically that that people thought my work has grown and that um, you know because it felt to me like this book did feel um, like a marker of growth for me, but it's, you know, like I can't personally be the arbiter of that, you know, my brain, it felt like I grew a lot and I took some leaps 
But um, hearing people say that, that it actually shows up on the page has been really refreshing and really exciting. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that it's a mixture of so much, you know, it's a mixture of, it's a mixture of memoir. It's a mixture of social, you know, social theory. It's a, a cultural criticism. It's also, you know, at heart, it's, um, it's a celebration of things that you've loved, you know, which, uh, you know, which I love, particularly the way you juxtapose it toward your own perspective on things. I love the autobiographical senses of, on times I have forced myself to dance, how you have that before each, each movement. It's like a coda before each movement. Beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was in part the work of the editor I worked with, Maya Millet, who was so generous and thoughtful about pointing out that I was writing into pockets and series of ideas and themes without, without even knowing it. I think, you know, when you spend enough time with a book and you sink into a book, you kind of forget that you're almost organically shaping it. Your brain is shaping it as you work on it. And I needed someone else to see it and, um, you know, nudge me in that direction. Well, you know, which, which leads me to this. And I read somewhere that, or I saw it being interviewed or I read it, that you had conceived of this book a little differently and that there was a kind of evolution that brought you to this book. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this book initially was going to be a book about appropriation and minstrelsy and the history of um, Black performance as it had been appropriated and we reworked through the lens of whiteness and um, kind of stretching through that 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 thinking. But I realized when working on that book um, and working on that, that angle that because of that angle I'd predetermined, I couldn't write that without centering whiteness, right? And without diminishing the celebratory nature of Black performance because it was still centering um, things that could be taken, you know? Um, and then I kind of halfway through abandoned that and started working with what was left, which was the Josephine Baker essay, uh, a part of the Soul Train essay, and a part of the Mary Clayton essay. And I wanted to build out from there and build out with an idea of writing towards celebration first and just seeing where it took me. It's so interesting you mentioned that because those are three of my favorite essays. But I think also, you know, it's no accident, I bet, that you use uh, the Sunrock quote as well as Tony's, Tony Morrison's quote in the beginning. Think of our lives and tell us your particularized world. Make up a story. Talk about how, you know, how Tony was a trailblazer in what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Tony Morrison is so important to me. You know, Ms. Morrison's a, an Ohioan and um, absolutely, a, for me, the greatest Ohioan we've ever had. Um, certainly the greatest writer, but I also think just the greatest Ohioan we've ever had. And um, in some ways, she's very much a guiding light for me in my work. Um, and when I decided to kind of pivot the idea of the book, I couldn't help but think about Toni Morrison and her the very real thing that she often talked about, which was, um, you know, removing, deprioritizing whiteness to the point where you remove it from your imagination and then seeing what's left, you know, for black writers in particular, seeing what's left if you decenter the desires of, of whiteness from your work. And for me, 
to do that and see what was left, I was really thrilled to see um, that what ended up being left was uh, excitement and exuberance and pleasure that I could give more room to stories and give more room to the nuances of um, the greatness of folks like Don Cornelius or the greatness of someone like Ellen Armstrong. I could get to not just already told stories, but undertold stories as well. And through that, um, I think the book took a really thoughtful turn. I feel like I'm discovering it, but as I was reading it, I feel like I was discovering these things as you were discovering them as well, or remembering how you discovered them, which made me in essence see it through your eyes, which is what I really loved because, you know, because I am white and I could, it doesn't make sense to see it through my own eyes. Yeah. And, you know, having, you know, sort of seeing it through your eyes is really, really an interesting thing. Yes, but I also think it's worthwhile to detach from the white audience entirely or do not prioritize or or think about the white audience entirely. Though I think in some cases, you know, it's also about, it's also about access, you know, like who has access to an ability to consume the work. And blues and hip hop are a perfect example of this where the people who have access to witness the performance and be present during the performance are not always the people who perhaps have access to the history of the music right. or an understanding of the, the history and the weight of the music. And that's, that's, you know, that's just something that happens and has happened and um, I think will likely continue to happen. Well, speak about that in terms of Mary Clayton. And, you know, that was a very moving chapter. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, that was an important chapter for me because I really wanted to, um, you know, highlight Mary Clayton, who was someone I thought about a lot and someone whose work I, I spent a lot of uh, music. I spent a lot of time with independent of Gimme Shelter, but I was also bothered by how few people understood Gimme Shelter as um, not even, I mean, of course it's a Rolling Stone song, but I think Mary Clayton um, absolutely left a mark on that song, even the Stones version that, that makes it her song. And of course she later, you know, covered it um, on her own. Uh, but it, it's, it's a struggle for me to think about the amount of stories that are undertold and undervalued. And, you know, I just want to correct the record a little bit or put more or like add to the record, put more of the record um, into the world so that um, there's, there's another option to consider people as more than just tragic figures. Be it Mary Clayton or, or Whitney Houston or any of these folks, you know, it's important for me that they're considered as more than just tragic. Talk a little bit, I mean, along those lines with Josephine Baker and even the title of the book. Would you relate those two things? Yeah, I mean, title of the book comes from a speech Josephine Baker gave at the March on Washington um, a little bit later in her career. And, and so much of my interest in Josephine Baker, at least through the lens of this book, was, uh, you know, her later career, which I don't think was, is, has been honored or um, loved or cared for as much historically than her early career. And, and, you know, I wanted to find a home for my investments in that and my interest in that. And, um, you know, and I wanted to lift up that part of a life, you know, a lot of this project of the book was asking myself how to honor full 
the fullness of, of, of people's lives. Tell me a little bit about what went into your thinking to decide to include yourself in this. And how does that relate to the way you, the way you define performance? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, uh, in a way, I'm performing a version of myself. Um, you know, everything in there is, not everything, but there are parts of myself where I'm a speaker who's kind of like a, um, you know, um, essentially like a funhouse mirror version of my actual self. And having myself pressed up against the backdrop of these performers, performers and these histories, I think illuminates the fact that um, to some extent, to some great extent, or sometimes not even a great extent, my living is a performance. Um, and the way that I present myself in, in the work is a type of performance. And so, um, you know, these things I think deserve um, some honesty and some clarity. And the only way I knew I'd do that was by making myself present in the book and being real about um, what that looks like. Don Cornelius. I, I mean, I remember watching him when I was really a kid. <laughs> you know, I watched him live in those days. And you talk about him being, you know, one of the coolest guys around. And that came across so clearly, even to a 14-year-old suburban kid living in Miami Beach. Talk about his importance. You know, I came up in an era where there were a lot of black sitcoms. Um, good ones, like ones I'm not, you know, shamed of or angry about or anything like that. Um, some that certainly have an age well in my in my estimation. But there were a lot of black sitcoms, a lot of black people on TV in the form of a sitcom. And it was interesting to see Soul Train in that context or to see these Soul Train reruns where the aim was not necessarily to deliver a message to a broad audience. It was just kind of um, seeking a type of physical, perhaps emotional liberation um, for an hour or so, at least an hour that we saw. Um, and Don Cornelius was just a real vessel for that, just through the freedom of having to dance and, and hearing songs one loves and being in... Um, being in community with movement that is on your own terms. Um, you know, and, and so Soul Train was interesting to me because it provided that without a lot of, you know, there's no laugh track, there's no moral at the end of it. There's, there's the requirement of the dancers was just to be free, to dance as freely as they wish. And that was the end. Um, and there was something about that and Don Cornelius being a real vessel for that, that, that made me uh, admire him a bit. Do you still dance? Talk about dance. Is that something you like to do still? I mean, I never really was much of a dancer at all, um, <laughs> but like I love to watch. Yeah. I mean, I love to watch, you know, Soul Train. I, I still, you know, I, I watched so much of it and spent a lot of time with it. And, um, you know, when working on this book, I spent a lot of time with the archives and, that was all really vital to me. That was all really exciting to me. And um, to go back into that bit of, a, of, of past and, uh, you know, spend some time with those folks, uh, it felt real communal. Marlon uh, James, when he talked about this, I think this speaks to it where he says, you know, Hanif Abdurraqib's genius is in pinpointing those moments in American cultural history when black people made lightning strike but black performance, black artistry, black freedom too often came at devastating price. The real devil in America is America itself. 
the one who stole the soul, that Abdurraqib, through open eyes and with fearless prose, snatches back. This book is searing, uh, revelatory, filled with utter heartbreak and unstoppable joy. That's very kind of Marla. I mean, you know, uh, of course, such a big fan of his. And when he agreed to blurb the book, I was stunned. Um, and so I, I appreciate that kindness. Well, and knowing Marlon, you know, if it wasn't something he liked, he wouldn't have done. So he really, you know, he did it because I, be, I bet he really believed in it a lot. The other thing that was very moving was when, you know, I found it very moving when you wrote about your parents, particularly your mom. Can you talk about your mother a little bit as she appears in the book? And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've written about my mother a lot and, and I think... Um, to consider her, you know, to, to, as I get older, the more I think about um, sacrifices my parents made and the way my parents lived, um, you know, I, I think about parenting as a, a type of performance. And, you know, I wanted to honor that. I wanted to write about, uh, again, write about another part of a full their full lives and, and to not be ashamed of perhaps seeing parts of myself in my parents as I have gotten older. And you actually end the book if you say, the possibilities for my exits have been endless, and so the gratitude for my staying must be equally endless. I am sorry that this is, that this one is not about movement or history or dance, but instead about stillness, about all of the frozen moments that I've been pulled back from, in serving in service of attempting another day, and the fact that you you really are so open about issues of anxiety issues of, you know, what seemingly is depression, issues of, of difficulty is a pretty brave thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I never thought about it as that, although I, I do appreciate that. And I, and I appreciate if, if, especially if it resonates with folks who are struggling similarly, but I've, I've never thought about it like that in part because, um, you know, it's just a part of, um, it's just been a part of my life for so long that it doesn't, I don't know if it would feel genuine if I didn't write about it, you know? Um, or I don't know if genuine is the word, but I, it, it, it would feel like I was um, not speaking about something that's a very large part of my mental and emotional makeup in the way I make it through the, the day to day. Um, and, and so I, I feel like I, I almost am required to be, to be honest about it. You know, as you said earlier, what you're doing is you're celebrating all of these artists. And uh, look, you know, you as a writer have a choice to do whatever you want. And the idea of celebration is life affirming. And um, I think, you know, I, I so I think the way you ended it is extremely appropriate to a large extent. You're a poet, you're an essayist, you're a, a cultural commentator. You work in a very interesting cultural way and, and then what I loved is the simplicity of the way you describe yourself in huge print on your website. Hi, I'm Hanif. I write poems. I write things about music. And I am probably eating French fries. And if you were here in Miami, I would, all we would do is eat French fries together <laughs> and talk about music and listen to music. And, and that's all I really would love to be doing in any case. How, how would you describe what it is you do? Um, I mean, I think I'm mostly just a curious person who attempts to find my way 
to unearthing those curiosities in any way I know how, you know, be it, you know, I'm a seeker, I'm someone who likes seeking and searching and, um, you know, that feels really important to me. And, and that's, I have so much of my identity, I think, tied up in that. Um, and um, that, that feels important. Where does that come um, from? Does it, you, you know, you write a lot about your family, your big brother, and you write about your parents. Where, where, where was, where did that come from? Not everybody has that. Well, I think I was the youngest of four, you know, I'm the youngest of four and I, I spent a lot of time um, not alone, but isolated, which feel like two different things to me. Um, isolated kind of with my own thoughts and my own ideas and my own imagination. And I kind of had to bridge the gap between the things I was consuming, music, sports, film, and my imagination. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I spent a lot of time thinking and, and seeking and at a very early age was felt a really robust permission to pursue my curiosities. Um, and uh, that has definitely, you know, permeated in, in the, um, in my adult life as well. Are, are there mentors in your life or people that you, you know, look up to in these various aspects of what you do that, that have influenced you greatly? Oh, of course. I mean, I don't know about mentors. There are definitely people I've looked up to. I mean, there's, um, you know, just the, the critic, Jessica Hopper, poet, Terrence Hayes, um, poet, Khadijah Queen, poet Adrian Matika, Griel Marcus. These are folks too, who I think have, and of, I mean, many more, um, who have made a kind of a blueprint for me um, to show me that I could kind of write excitedly about what I wanted to write about with, the, with, with whatever tools I could bring to it. You know, talk about Columbus as a city and, and what that afforded you being there. And you still maintain Columbus as your home, right? Yeah, I'm still here and we'll probably be here forever, I hope. What's the community like there? What's the vibe there for people who don't know at all? Oh, it's a great writing community. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, um, generous writing community with a diversity of styles and perspectives and approaches to the work. Um, you know, I came up on the poetry slam scene here um, and that was great. And, um, you know, it's also a place I think where um, you can do your work quietly um and be supported through that through that kind of quietness um but also for me it's just a place that is richly familiar that feels really familiar and um that i can kind of comfortably and happily sink into would you read a little bit from the book i'll read i'll read from the josephine baker piece and i'll just read like a page and a half in Columbus, the seemingly endless hands of summer are trimming autumn's once long hair. The sun stays hungry well into September, which has become more common, which, which has become a more common occurrence in my adult years here. Soon, I imagine, the heat will tumble recklessly into October as well. If one doesn't think of the impending doom signaled by the rise in temperatures, it can feel like a welcome extension of our city's summer magic, a time when the town isn't bogged down by Ohio State students. But as an exchange, owing to the heat and dryness, the leaves don't turn until late in October before falling to the ground hastily, almost sprinting to their demise. I moved back to Columbus after being away for nearly three years following a relationship to New Haven, Connecticut. 
When the relationship ended, I could realistically have lived anywhere. I was working remotely, and for the first time in my life, I had a little bit of money in my savings account. But I wanted to come home. Being from this place had become inextricably linked towards my identity, and so I pushed myself to love it. As the calendar ticked toward October and my days were still drenched in sweat, the signs began to appear on freeway overpasses. Large swaths of cloth with messages painted on them in black spray paint. Messages that are far-reaching and all-encompassing. You are loved hangs on the overpass right before the exit that used to take, to take me to my high school girlfriend's house on the nights her parents were out of town. You are enough floating in the few gusts of thick wind on another overpass, the one before the exit that spits you out on the part of the east side that bends into an insulated suburb where black people from my hood couldn't hang out with much comfort despite living only a few blocks in either direction. I walk my dog over the highway near our apartment, which separates downtown from the brick lined streets of German village. We've walked only a few steps, but her tongue is out and she is panting heavily and squinting into the sun. The sign affixed to the fence reads, if you're going to hell, if you're going through hell, keep going. I have never understood who these signs are for. I don't feel like the you that is being addressed by them, which might be a failure of my own imagination. Instead, I have begun to imagine that the messages are meant for the city itself, the city that breaks itself apart and rebuilds itself at the expense of often marginalized and often poor people, at the expense of their homes, their comforts, their history. You are enough hanging from a freeway less than a mile from where the city decided one stadium wasn't good enough to keep a soccer team, and so another one must be built elsewhere on new land and of course it bears mentioning that my mere presence in this city even the parts of it I've long loved is an act of painting over. Gentrification is undoubtedly a sin that comes with very tangible consequences. I have not loved to watch the way a city shifts at the whims of those with wealth and power, but the corner store I miss wasn't always a corner store. The basketball courts where I learned to shoot were built upon land that looked much different than it did when they were completed. Much of our living is an act of painting over an existence before ours, and my understanding of that doesn't dim the pain I feel at the unfamiliarity of new spaces I've been in. You know, you're writing about your city and we see that in cities all across America. And yeah. particularly given what's happening in the, in the political zeitgeist right now and what just happened a few days ago, I thank you for that reading. And, you. You, know, you know, Jacqueline Woodson wrote about, about this, that, you know, Hanif is one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read. Now, how's that? I'll just stop there. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, Jacqueline Woodson was, was born out here on the east side of Columbus. So Was she really? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think she really, I mean, I can't speak for her. I don't know if she identifies in Ohio, but birthplace, yeah, here. Well, she says that the book needs to be on every bedside table, every high school and college desktop. In this age of revolution, this is the one book that everyone needs to read. And we are in some sort of a, an age of revolution. What, what makes you hopeful these days? Yeah, the, the resilience and ability of young organizers to, um, you know, seem to have a really firm relationship with how to collectively fight against the oppressive nature of the state and to, and to do it, um, you know, intergenerational, intercommunity solidarity. I, I have hope for that. Um, and, and, you know, that's maybe all I have hope for, but I, that's actually enough, though, for me. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good good thing to be hopeful for. Um, what what are the dangers that lie ahead that you see? Oh, I mean, countless. It, you, I mean, I think you know, I I think there's uh, a lot 
a lot of treacherous things that that will permeate our living always but you know one i don't want to make that i don't want to say this is dangerous but i do think about you know the, i've been talking a lot about the future of touch and how um you know so many of us were like well you know when i get vaccinated i'm going to run out into the world and hug everyone but i, I do think there's a tentativeness um around touch that will hover for a long time and i do worry about really young generations kids who are coming up in this era who are or have kind of been forged especially the first like few years of their lives have been forged in this era where um touch and and, and curiosity and all these things have have almost been required to be um dampened by anxiety due to due to our circumstances and so i do worry about that hanif you are in it's it's indicative of the kind of the kind of insights that you give that are fresh and different. You know, you don't hear about people talking about that as much, but that is, a, it's really true. I don't know what it's going to look like when we're all out and about, you know, it's, um, it's pretty scary. Um, but in some ways, you know, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but in some ways, you know, pandemic has allowed people, I know that I periodically go through my phone and just call people I haven't spoken to in a long, long time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's it's kind of flipped us into th- taking a step back and thinking about how important it is for just what you said, you know, the exact thing that you just mentioned. Oh, for sure, for sure. So, Hanif, I want to thank you for being on The Literary Life. And um, I want to invite you down to Miami when all this is over. And I, I can't you- wait. It's, uh, you know, truly, it's one of my favorite literary cities. And, I, you know, I, I miss it a great deal. And, um, you know, I've had some, I've done some of my favorite readings there. You know, it's just, it's a place I love a lot and, and miss a lot and, and can't wait to come back. Well, we care about you and wish you the best. And I can tell you that we're going to try to sell a million copies of A Little Devil in America which just came out. And uh, those of you listening can get it from any of your local independent bookstores. I can't thank you enough for being part of all of this. Oh, no doubt. Thank you so much for having me. It was good to talk. And I truly do hope to take you up on coming down, coming down to the city.